Welcome to the Middle Church Podcast, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, intergenerational movement of spirit and justice, powered by revolutionary love with room for everyone. No matter where you are, how you look, or who you love, we pray this podcast will help you on your journey. Here's this week's sermon. Mom and dad always had the Friday night dance parties at their house on the Air Force Base. I loved watching them. Mom had a green cocktail dress fitted in the middle, flared in the waist, showing off her beautiful hourglass figure. Dad had an olive suit and a black fedora. They loved to coordinate all through their marriage. We wearing blue today? Let's be at the beige. The walls were pink and the flowers on the slip covers matched. A big hi-fi console was the center of the party. More important than the food and the rum and coke and the cards was the music. James Brown, Sam Cooke, Ella Fitzgerald and Nancy Wilson, dancing was the point. I'd be bouncing, dancing, twirling, twerking a little bit of two-year-old twerk. But the best part was when dad put me on his shoes and I danced some more. Youssef Latif, Earl Grant, all my favorites. My people are people of the dance. Enslaved Africans danced the juba or the hambone because they weren't allowed drums on the plantations and they used their hands and their bodies to create sound. Clapping their hands on their thighs and chests grounded them in their joy, which was their resistance. Our people tap danced, blending British clogging and West African dance and Irish dancing, making something new in their circumstances with old and new material, kind of like quilting. Black folks brought our dancing from Nigeria and Ghana and Trinidad and turned it into the Charleston. <laughs> our jazz brought forth the Lindy Hop. We twisted the nights away and then we ran the pews on Sunday morning. We bumped, did the football, the walk though that was not politically correct, and the robot. We danced to house music and hip hop, brought break dancing, locking and popping, the running man, and the stanky leg, of course, to the dance floor. We did all of this alongside ballet and ballroom. We vogued our beautiful queerness and sometimes they could not stand the sparkle. Ashe, Oshe, we see you, we honor you. We danced when our backs were tired from picking cotton. We danced on Friday nights in house parties and in basements with those blue lights that made people like me look linty as hell. <laughs> it was not sexy. <laughs> we slow dragged and we hustled and we still stuck today. There was dancing in the psalmist culture, 
After the triumphant crossing of the Red Sea, Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with their timbrels and with their dances. On his triumphant return from battle at Mitzpah, Jephthah was greeted by his daughter with timbrels and dancing. When David and Saul returned from battle with the Philistines, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with timbrels, with joy, with rattles. And the men danced too. David's dance before the Ark of the Covenant was an example of the religious ecstatic dances performed by men, I'm going to say African and Semitic men, dancing until the spirit descended. The Psalms exhorted people to praise God's name in the dance, praise God with timbrels, and dance. We read the Psalms because they sing our pain and our joy. All of humanity has experienced the famine, the terror, the violence, the war, sickness, misfortune, devastation, and despair that the psalmist did. Each of us has experienced that pain. We've been hurt, humiliated, and harmed in our lives. And then we've prayed to God for help. If things got better, we praised God for the turn of events. We've been disappointed, dissed, and destroyed by what life has to offer. And when we pray to the God of our ancestors, if things did not get better, we wondered why our prayers were not answered. Was God still God? Did God still care about us? Or had God turned a deaf ear? And if so, why? What had we done or not done such that God ignored our petitions? In this text, the psalmist is having a change of heart, a transformation. The transformation here, what the psalmist calls their healing here, is actually a theological awakening. You hear in the text, the psalmist is like, good things happening, thank you God. Bad things happening, why are you not paying attention to me? They used to think God answered prayers and that meant prosperity. They used to think their suffering was the result of God turning a deaf ear, and they felt it was their fault. How did that make them feel? It made them feel bad, but it also made them feel in control of their destiny. Hello? Because if my prayers are managing God, that's a pretty, that's a lot of power. <laughs> what the psalmist came to understand is this. Life is life. It has mountaintop experiences and dark nights of the soul. It has peaks and it has values. It has joy and pain. And it brings sunshine and rain. Y'all know you want to sing it. There are times when it feels like the stars are aligned for our health and our well-being and our thriving. But there are also hellish times. And the psalmist came to understand that even in the depths, even in the pit, the psalmist said, God was there every time and all the time. Friends, to live is to suffer sometimes. To be in relationship with God is to praise God, the psalmist comes to understand, all the time. To praise God all the time. 
all the time. This was the revelation, to praise God in all the circumstances. Why? Just for being God. Just for being present. Is that enough? Is God being present enough? God is present, but is God actually managing all the aspects of our life? This is the part where I'm going to mess with us a little bit. What if God is not actually making sure we get the A, get the job? Y'all know, oh God, please, oh please, oh please, oh please, oh please, oh please, oh please, let me get this gig. And then you don't get it. What the? Is God turned against you? Did you screw up, mess up, didn't pray hard enough, didn't move your prayer beads fast enough, didn't stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight in church, and therefore you didn't get the gig, didn't get married, didn't get divorced, (laughs) didn't lose the weight, didn't gain the wealth, didn't find what was lost? What if God is not organizing the universe? After all, on our behalf. God told me to buy these yellow shoes, so I'm going to buy them. What what in the living heck? God told me to break up with you, okay? So it's over. She ain't got time for those kind of details in our lives. What if God is instead listening, watching, and waiting for our choices, our decisions. Buy those damn yellow shoes. Break up with that weasel. But don't blame that stuff on me. It ain't my business. I think God says. (laughs) What if God is wanting to empower our choices, our agency, our decisions to make of our individual yellow shoe wearing lives and the world what we need to make of it in partnership with the holy what if God is a partner and not a puppeteer the psalmist is inviting us in this text to revisit some of how we envision God The current contract we make with God can be a difficult one for God to keep. She's going to fail us if we set God up to do what we want, when we want, as we ask for it every day. God's not going to do it, and pretty soon we're feeling like we need to break up with God. All we're left with is the dust of we thought God was As we reclaim and reframe what it means to be Christian, that's something about the public world and public theology, but also it's about our relationship, our personal relationship with God. We can ask ourselves, what is God up to? Have like a holy curiosity. What is God's role in the universe? I say presence. I say presence with love. I say presence with an expectation that we will love. I say presence that came in the world to show us how to love. This is what love looks like. 
Sending Jesus in the world to teach us how to love all the time, every day, all the neighbors and ourselves. Love, period, because God is love. Those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. When we love, we're the place God kicks it, the place God hangs out. You've heard me say, when we love, we are love shacks, baby. <laughs> Listen, my dad is dying of ALS. I was talking to a friend yesterday. I said, I've said goodbye to daddy three times now, and he's still here. He's a stubborn dude. He's still here. We're taking him off the oxygen today, so he won't be here long. But ALS, I know, is a veteran's disease. When daddy could speak, he asked me, because I'm the theologian in residence in his life, what did I do? What did I do so that God punished me with ALS? What kind of childhood theology did he get that made him think good things are going to happen to good people and bad things are going to happen to bad people, and if you're sick, you must have done something wrong? And if you're, well, I must have done something good. Is that really what it is? Dad who taught me how to dance, me who to write, me who to pray, my turn to teach. Daddy, you didn't do anything for God to make you sick because God didn't make you sick. Bodies get sick. Say it with me. Do bodies get sick? God doesn't send cancer in ALS to punish us for something we did. Bodies die. Don't let theology trap you into breaking up with God because it is going to be some stuff that you are not going to like that happens in your life. And God didn't do it. Next sermon we'll talk about evil. But in this one, we have all been party to the ways the church has militarized God, weaponized God, used God to keep us in line, keep us down, keep us out, keep us afraid. Let's turn away from that. Let's turn away from theologies that cripple us, in which God somehow is the cause of some problems we're having. And also theologies that keep us keeping each other in chains. You're queer, I don't understand it. God thinks you're an abomination. You're a woman, I'm a sexist. God does not want you to preach. You're black, I think you're less than I am. God ordained my supremacy. You're poor, I want to hoard my wealth. Your poverty is a result of your sin. Do you, do you know that people preach that? From the New York Times and the Constitution and the Bible. You're not a Christian, and the God we've created in our own image is. So you're going to hell unless you convert. And we will torture you, kill you, chase you down, gas you, because you don't. Lord, have mercy. Look at the monster. Look at the monster we've created in the place of God. 
We've come so far from God is love. I need us to make our way back. Make our way to a relationship with the holy that is bound in a contract called love. Love that casts out fear. Love that is unconditional. Love that is patient and kind, but also fierce and insisting on justice. Rabbi Harold Kushner, y'all know that book? When good, bad things happen to good people, had a son, three years old, diagnosed with a life-threatening disease that would make him age quickly. He was an old man when he was three. He died when he was 14. The rabbi wrote this book to heal his own soul. And in it, he writes, the God, excuse me, the idea that God gives people what they deserve, that our misdeeds and our misfortunes is an, is, comes from God, is a neat and attractive solution to the problem of misfortune at several levels, but it has several limitations. Are you all tracking what I'm saying? Yeah. It makes sense, but it doesn't. It teaches people to blame themselves. It creates guilt even when there's no basis for guilt. It makes people hate God, even as they hate themselves. Can you feel what I'm talking about? That's what my friend John Kenny would call broken, fallen theology. Theology that makes an untenable relationship with us and God. We did it, God punished us, we're pissed at God, we're pissed at ourselves, and there is no love in that. Did I say the word pissed, is that okay? <laughs> I think it makes us feel better to think we're controlling the universe's cruelty. I think we love it if we think, oh, if only I had prayed harder. If I only paid my tithe, pay your tithe. But if I only paid my tithe, not for God, for your church, coming back to that. Um, if only I had loved harder, done it better, rather than feeling like the bad things that happen to us is random, we feel comforted by cause and effect thinking. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. In it, there's a demon named Screwtape who's training a young demon named Wormwood. And in one of the training sessions in letter number 27, um, the, the, the little demon is trying to figure out what to do about prayer. And basically, Screwtape says, don't worry. The humans think God is going to answer their prayers immediately, and that's how they're going to get stuck. What they don't know is God has an unbounded now. And unbounded now to answer their prayers. And unbounded now, in which we can learn to relate to God in a new way, in love, in peace, in gentleness. An unbounded now that is the container for both our weeping and our joy. An unbounded now in which we can dance and wail and sing and shake our fists and be angry and delight in God almost all at the same time. Everything, everywhere, all at once. We can trip ourselves up by putting some demands on God to show up like a vending machine for us. Didn't I ask you for the yellow shoes? I can't believe I've been asking for those shoes for two weeks and you didn't answer my prayers. What's up with you, God? With her busy self. Inside the unbounded now, a church might burn down. A mother might die of cancer. 
A father might have ALS. A child might have a disease. A baby might die on a bus from Texas to Chicago trying to get to safe places. Inside the unbounded now, there is disease. There is failure. There is pain. There is heartbreak. There is COVID. There's a simultaneous nature of joy and sorrow that are all swirling in that container. And what is God doing? Not causing it. What is God doing? Being present to us in it. Because God came to the world to experience all of that with us and knows what it's like to want some damn shoes and not get them, to be sick, to be tired, to feel rejected, to be heartbroken. God knows what it's like to be human. Is it enough in the end for us to say God is present? Is it enough to say God is love? Is it enough to sustain us, to comfort us, to draw us to love? Sometimes I think not. That's how we create this big old boogeyman God who will kick our neighbor's butt and keep us safe, but then might turn on us when we don't behave. That mean uber parent can make us feel safe until it doesn't. I think love is enough. I know that I need love to be enough. And I think we all need love to be enough. Leaning back into the arms of love gives us confidence in these hot mess times. What else are we going to do? Throw away God. Or change the way we think about God. Keep a God of love or break up with the mean daddy. I'd rather keep love. In this context, our prayers are not demands, but they're conversations with God. Do you feel me? We're just kicking it. Lord, what's going on? How you doing? I'm worried about, you know, Dad. Can you help me feel some peace about it, right? Not please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, save him. Please, God, let him be comfortable as he transitions. A conversation with God. Calming us, teaching us to lean in, to wonder what God is up to, to align ourselves with God's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To put ourselves in a peaceful place that understands that love will not let us go. In good times and bad times, in sickness and in health for better or for worse, this is a relationship from which we don't need to get divorced. This is a relationship that changes us and we change with it, and we grow with it. This love will not forsake us. It will help us find what we need to get by. Prayer is not a vending machine, but it's more like, and stay with me here, taking your black hat and throwing it up in the air, like a black signal, if you will, and you're not sure what's gonna happen, but you know something, somebody's gonna see that hat and come and help you, amen? <laughs> They might have a chair, they might not. <laughs> Our morning turns to dance because we know God is not leaving us. Our morning turns to dancing because we know we're not alone. Our morning turns to dancing because we're accompanied by a love so profound, so revolutionary, so fierce that it wraps itself around us and holds us close, swaddles us, if you will, in love, providing for us what we need to learn to be human on the planet. 
protecting us from simplistic theologies that cause us to break up with the God who wants to be close to us. We're not so powerful as to manipulate God with our prayers. But we are loved enough to be treated as partners with the holy. This love is a container in which nothing in life, Paul says, nothing in death, nothing high, nothing low, nothing in all of creation can separate us from who God is and what God wants. God is love, and we are loved. Because we're loved, in God's unbounded now, every little thing, it won't be perfect, but it's going to be all right. We're going to be all right. for listening, friends. To learn more about Middle Church, visit middlechurch.org. You can help grow this movement of love and justice by rating us on Apple or Spotify and by sharing this episode with a friend or two. Send us an email at info at middlechurch.org if you have any questions or comments. We hope you'll come back next week. Bye for now.